0: 2 Chronicles chapter 18, we're going to look at the entire chapter. It's long, 34 verses. Uh, We're not going to read it as we usually do before. We'll be able to follow it. But the message is entitled, The Compromise of Jehoshaphat. Uh, We come to the second revival through King Jehoshaphat. Three more will follow, as you know. These five outstanding kings failed, as we've already seen Asa who failed. Started good, then he failed. Therefore, the revivals of all these five men were the sovereign work of God. It wasn't due to the kings because they were perfect or sinless. The revivals resulted in reforms. Man cannot bring about revival. God brings revival. You hear all the time on radio and TV and on church, we're looking for revival. You can't bring revival. God does that sovereignly. True revival always um, is marked by certain things. Repentance, prayer, and the study of the Word of God. But biblical revival and is really for the people of God. It's not for the non-believer. Usually when you think of revival you think about people getting saved all over. It isn't. You revive people who have become lukewarm, compromising. The church. Look up the word revive. It's always in the song for the people of God. The natural outgrowth and consequences is that people get revived again on fire for God, and now they have a heart for the lost. But it's for the people of God. Hosea 9:9. 9, 9. I mean Hosea 6:2, Ezra 9:9, 9, 9. Habakkuk 3:2. A couple of examples. Now the revival of Jehoshaphat covers four chapters, from chapter 17 down to uh, the end of chapter 20. Uh, He had a godly character up to this point. He prepared the land against the enemies, rejected the false worship of Israel, as you know, and uh, he sought the Lord, his Father, and therefore uh, he secured the kingdom, and his heart, uh, and the light of his heart was with God. We get this in chapter 17, the first six verses. Then he commissioned men to teach the Word of God as the revival is working, the reforms come in, and people are assisted there to understand the word of God through these commissioned men and their assistants in verse 7 through 9. So that the people of God began to have the mind of God and, and are being led by God. And he had a powerful reign, it says, as God put the fear of God around the surrounding nations, the divine protection, a powerful, capable army is given to him in chapter 17, verse 10 through 19. So God brings the revival the revival results in reforms, back to the repentance, the word of God and prayer, and God directs and guides. So it's for the people of God, true revival. So up to this point, like we saw in Asa, he's good. But then Jehoshaphat made an alliance with evil Ahab that is characterized in three things here. The question even at the front, Why? Let me give you the three things here. First, the political affiliation to ensure victory in battle, verse 1 through 11. That's why the alliance was formed. Second, you have the prophetical proclamation that ensured defeat in the battle, verse 12 through 27. Thirdly, you have the tactical operations thwarted. In battle, verse 28 through 34. The evil alliance began here with the political affiliation to ensure victory in the battle, 1 through 11. Notice verse 1 through 3, the ungodly allegiance of Jehoshaphat with Ahab. Mark it well. The parallel passage, 1 Kings chapter 22 Verse 1 through 4, the costly compromise of Jehoshaphat is given to us in verse 1. The condition of his reign is stated, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance. The wealth of Jehoshaphat was due to God, not because he was good. God brought a revival, he sought the Lord, reforms came in, and God naturally blessed him. You become a better steward, you appreciate things, you make wise decisions, but the problem with having money is that a person that has money sometimes gets to the place where they don't have to ask God what to do, they just do it. Money is a problem. You see, if you have $10, then you pray, Lord, how do I spend this, right? But if you have 500 you just spend it. That's the problem with money. Now, the condition of Jehoshaphat's family changed. Notice, but it's not for good. Still in verse 1. And by marriage, he allied himself with Ahab. He agreed to the marriage of his son Jehoram to Athaliah, the daughter of the most wicked king, Ahab and Jezebel. Second Chronicles 21, 6 gives us that. They introduced Baal worship, all the in the northern kingdom. The ministry of Elijah was primarily against them. He related the two kingdoms now by bloodline becoming in-laws with the wicked king of Israel. A godly man. Revival. Reform. What are you doing there? The contradiction of light and darkness. The worship of Yahweh. The worship of Baal. They don't go together. In fact, the Davidic line would nearly be destroyed by Athaliah as she destroyed and killed all her grandchildren except for one that was hidden, Joash, in Second Kings 11, 1 and 2, later on down the history. Remember, this is history looking back, examine. God is focusing upon this, okay? This is history after the fact. This is not a repetition of Kings or Samuel or any of those. Now notice verse 2 and 3, the natural progressive compromise by being unequally yoked in relationships. The two families gathered here in verse 2 in festivity. After some years he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria and Ahab killed sheep and oxen in abundance for him and the people who were with him. So the marriage must have taken place somewhere around the 8th year of Jehoshaphat if we examine 1 Kings 22 verse 2 and 4 and 2 Kings eight twenty-six, We can figure that out. Ahab died on the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, we're told. Therefore, the visit falls no less than eight years after the marriage, 1 Kings 22.3. Now, the problem with family ties with unbelievers without having boundaries is that it will cause us to yield to more compromise. Listen to what he says in verse 2 at the end. And persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth Gilead. Family ties. The pressure comes on. Proverbs six twenty-seven says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? No. So even though we love our family, they love us, once you become a Christian, there's two different worlds. And you got off the boat and they continued in the boat. And you love them more now than ever before, but they can't understand why you don't partake in the things that you used to. And there's conflict. The unguarded family ties will always use pressure and emotional persuasion to compromise your witness and mine for God. Notice there in verse 3, the smooth sales pitch of family commitment. So Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? Come on, man, we're family. Amos says, can two walk together except they be agreed? No. Amos 3, three. Ahab is darkness. Baal worship. Jehoshaphat, there's a revival going on. He delights in God. What's he doing here? The unwise commitment comes in three there. And he answered him, I am as you are, and my people are your people. We will be with you in the war. Godly person, but because of the ties, and because of the pressure, and because of the situation. I'm here in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I should leave, but I don't. Wow. Just hopes the fat here, had made a treaty with Ben-Hadad and there had been three years of no war between Syria and Israel, 1 Kings 20, 24 tells us in 22, 1 and 2. Jehoshad is visiting. So there's this whole political stuff that's going on and he's already made a covenant with Syria, but now his father-in-law wants to go to war with Syria. So, you know, all this conflict comes in, Right? Very naturally. Look at verse 4 through 11. The false prophet of Ahab now prophesy victory in the war. The parallel passage is First Kings 22, 5 through 12. In verse 4, the foolish um, the request of Jehoshaphat is given to us. Listen to it. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord Yahweh today. What are you doing asking the king of the north that worships Baal? To call upon one of God's prophets. It doesn't jive. It doesn't go. He knew the prophets of Israel were false. He knew they were idolaters. In verse 5. The false prophets now were brought together. By Ahab. The number was great. Listen. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. 400 men. The question Ahab asked. Regarded the outcome. Of the battle. And he said to them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? Or I refrain, not we. The false prophets answered in the affirmative, because they're liars. And they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hand. Now notice the uneasiness of Jehoshaphat. Wanted confirmation in verse 6, but Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? We? He's made himself one with him. He hasn't known when to bow out. That happens a lot of times with Christians. He knew they were not prophets of God. He had no business being there. Look at verse 7. The reluctant response of Ahab to the request of Jehoshaphat for the prophet of God is given to us. The uneasy words of Ahab should have been another warning to Jehoshaphat. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there's still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord Yahweh, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me. He always um, always evil. He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And you can imagine, you know, the word of, uh, here, he uses the word Yahweh like, you know, no big deal, and you know, it just the it doesn't go. All these things are checks, kind of like when David went out in the balcony. There are many checks that David didn't give into, and he just ignored them, and he ended up blowing it. Notice the persuasive words of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat said, "Ah, oh, let not the king say such a thing." <laughs> the summoning of Micaiah by Ahab. Then it's given to us in verse 8. Then the king of Israel called one of the officers and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. He wants to find out. He he wants to get to it. We know nothing else about the prophet Micaiah. He is only mentioned here and in Kings um, this one time, 1 Kings 22. Now, Micaiah was probably held in prison there in Samaria at the time. Verse 9, the scene was a royal display. Notice, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, clothed in their robes, sat each in the throne, and they sat at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. So there's just been a big thing. I mean, they're there at the threshing floor, at the gate of the city where the judgments are made, the leaders, everything, you know, that's where all the authority of the city um, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom Samaria is beautiful, luxurious I mean they, they had ivory and then they were overlaid with gold I mean the stuff that was found in the northern kingdom and God gave them 50 years of, of prosperity and asking them to repent, they didn't then they went to captivity in 722 to Assyria Samaria is beautiful, we used to go there, we don't go there anymore because the natives get restless there, the Samaritans but um, it's a beautiful place, you can see all the way to east and west from both sides, it's high, it's, it's great in Israel. Now, notice the false prophet cheered them on with their lies. This is always the case. People don't love truth. People love lies. They love deception. Look at verse ten and eleven. The false prophets were emboldened as they went to get Micaiah. The main prophet took uh, center stage to affirm victory in the battle. Now Zedekiah, the son of uh, Shenanah, had made horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. Of course, the other 399 false prophets joined in, and all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord Yahweh will deliver into the king's hand." Listen to me, a very simple principle. The majority is always wrong. In the world and in the Lord. Two entered the promised land out of three million. Eight got in the boat. The rest of the world was destroyed. Two daughters and Lot left Sodom and Gomorrah. The rest were destroyed. The majority is always wrong. Many Christians have um, brought much misery to their lives and made wrong mistakes in terms of not making judgment for God's word and doctrine. I think of Jim Jones, David Koresh, and many others that are around Because they just join in an ecumenical movement of loving one another and not having discretion to drop the plumb line and to see what's true and what's air, what's light and what's darkness. And they're moved by emotions and pressures and what they see and what they're motivated by, falsely. The greatest test for you young people, teens and young adults, is that you don't compromise your faith and your witness for Christ. First, in not dating non-believers. Second, in not being engaged to a non-believer. And thirdly, not marrying a non-believer. Well, there's three steps there. You don't marry someone you don't date. And you don't get engaged to somebody you don't date. They're stepping stones. And yet how we've seen so many young people mess up their life by that in the last 45 years, in spite of the teaching, in spite of the warnings. Because somehow... We think that we're the exception. There are no exceptions. Yes, you might have heard something where a non-believer is married to a believer and then they get saved. But that's the exception. That's not the rule and that's not doctrine. That's just God's mercy and grace. It would be one in a million. The rest are all jacked up. Okay? That's very, very important. Um, the Bible says do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has uh, righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14. That's an absolute principle. You can't get away from it. And if you think that you're the exception, then you'll sadly learn that you're not. The putting up of certain boundaries to maintain our Christian witness to family and friends is vital. And we must not give in to uh, pressure or intimidation you know when you come to christ uh, some of your friends are not that happy about you even some of your family that's just the way it is because you know all of a sudden they say you have changed your religion and you think you're better than us whatever it may be and that's just the way it is now you love them more than you ever did before because you understand what why it is that they say they are because they're spiritually dead and you used to be there So you don't get mad at them. You understand why they're doing that, right? So you pray for them to be a witness. But you've got to set certain boundaries to maintain your witness. If you don't, you'll blow your witness. When I came to the Lord at 23, I had to set some boundaries for my dad and my mom. Certain things, the way I ran my home and everything else. Tough, but you have to do it. You have to maintain your witness. Um, When people might be intoxicated, they want you to come over, you know, and Uh, the conduct gets a little funky, and then uh, you need to know when to bow out. And when you're over there and there's controversy and they start, you you can see which way the thing's going. You have to say, you know what? I've got to leave, man, okay? I've got a place to go. see you later. I have to say, you dirty pagans. I don't want to be around. You don't say that. (laughs) You know, just use discretion and you bow out. Um, When you're over there and they put a movie on and, you know, there's stuff on there that you shouldn't and your kids are there, you, you bow out. You don't just allow the pressure or intimidation. Joshua twenty four fifteen says, it, it seems evil to you to serve the Lord Yahweh. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that serve over on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites as who you uh, dwell. Uh, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the commitment you have to make when it's when it's easy, when it's hard, when it's not so hard, or whatever it may be. It's always the same response. Consistency. The seeking of mediums is completely prohibited by God, you know that, but that's a big thing today. Everybody accepts it. Everybody thinks it's good. You know, there's no good or evil. There's just, you know, there's just energy. That's a key word for our society, right? Good energy, good energy. Really. Well, there's bad energy. Trust me. Um, the word, uh, uh the world accepts everything, astrology and uh, horoscopes and tarot cards and the uh, New Age mediums of spiritists and uh, necromancy and soothsaying and all that kind of stuff. This is even brought into the church with quote quote Christian yoga and Reiki and all this other stuff, right? We have the book uh, Jesus Calling by Sarah Young that is just, the church is just going crazy over it and has for some years. And it's it, there's supposed to be dictations directly from Jesus to this young girl. Well, they're contradictory to God. It's, it's the demonic. It's not of the Holy Spirit, but the, the, the church of God that's around, um, that isn't following the word of God, just embraces everything. And even those who have declared themselves to be Christian, like Oprah. They straddle the fence, and they're the greatest promoters of deception and heresy and demons. God help her. Amazing. That's not, you know, people aren't going to think you're nice. They're going to think, oh, you're supposed to be loving as a Christian. Yeah. If I love you, I tell you when you're wrong. But people don't want to hear that. Listen to the scripture. It says, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter to pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayers or one who interprets omens or sorcerer or one who conjures spells or mediums or a spiritist or one who calls on the dead necromancy for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God drives them out from before you Deuteronomy 18:10. through 12. Do you know this whole uh, new reformation going on? Uh, it's just Pentecostalism on steroids uh, where they lay on graves of pe- people who uh, you were know, anointed by God that they might receive the anointing upon them. That's demonic. That's inside the church. Amazing. So the political affiliation to ensure victory in battle was not the will of God. People always say, well, you know, but God's in it. Shut up. It's not in it. Light and darkness. And we try to rationalize. We try to explain. And you think you're the exception. You're not. It will bite you. You grab a dog by the tail or the ears, he's not going to lick you. He's going to bite you. Notice, secondly, comes the prophetical proclamation that ensured defeat in battle. Verse 12 through 27. In 12 through 17, the prophet of God prophesied defeat in the war, again the parallel passage, First King twenty-two, verse thirteen through sixteen, and the attempt to pressure Micaiah to agree that false prophets uh, with the false prophet is given here in twelve. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, "Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encouraged the king. Therefore, please let your words be like the words of, of one of them and speak encouragement." Come on, just flow with it. Let be in a hard nose. Come on. Again, he was probably in prison in Samaria when they brought him. The pressure to compromise your integrity and character will be tested every day of your life. It never stops. To be politically correct, to go along with the lies, the immorality, the propaganda of the extremist lefts, of the educators, of the newscasters, all of those things. You know, when I was um, younger in the Lord and we first came to the Lord, we had all kinds of people around us, all kinds of people from the Calvary chapels and other people. Boy, that was just big. You know, you had a lot of friends, this and that. And 40-some years down the road, 45, 46, hey, it, you know, it's, it gets, it's getting very slim. The circle gets smaller and smaller. Amazing. Look at 13. The prophet of God would only speak the truth. Micaiah said, as the Lord Yahweh lives, whatever my God says, I will speak. Wow. Not just when it's comfortable. Not just when it's safe. Not just when, you know, it's convenient. But all the time, his soul is based on God. He would be the true mouthpiece of God. And I think it's not so much what we say as how we say it. When I'm teaching to you guys, I come out a little stronger in that. When I do funerals, I say the same thing, but I say it with a different voice. A different tone, compassion, and that, right? We have to give God's word. The question was posed to Micaiah by Ahab. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And he's probably just looking real intense. Without doubt, it's kind of a reluctant, caustic tone in his voice and a facial expression because he doesn't like this guy. And the response of Micaiah was in mocking irony. And he said, go and prosper, and they shall be delivered into your hand. (laughs) So he probably saw the facial expression and body language of Ahab, so he returned it. We can't hear the tone of voice here, but we can follow the context and and hear the tone of voice and the facial expression and body language, and without doubt, Ahab got hold of it, um, and he understood that uh, Micaiah was just uh, not telling him the truth. You know, Ahab wanted to hear victory, so he gives him what he wants to hear, but the way he said it, he knew he, he wasn't telling the truth. The anger response here of King Ahab is given to us in 15. It says, So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord Yahweh? Ahab came unglued. Ahab used the name of the Lord in spite of all his evil. No big deal. But the thing is they, they, they get mad because you tell them the truth and they get mad when you don't tell them the truth. It doesn't make any difference, right? The prophet Micaiah prophesied disaster. i probably just right instant when he said that. He just went right into it. Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep. That have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. All of a sudden, he saw a vision of heaven and he goes right into it and he delivers it. The defeat of Israel was sure. All Israel scattered on the mountains. Let each return to his own house in peace. Defeat. The death of Ahab was sure also. As sheep that have no shepherd, these have no master. The poetical thing here is in crisscross manner, what's called parallelism. Notice the justification of Ahab for not wanting to call Micaiah as stated. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Wow. Jehoshaphat once again should have got up and left. He did not. Here's another check. Check after check after check after check. The prophet of God revealed the counsel of God at the throne of heaven, verse 18 through 20. The parallel passage is 1 Kings 22, 17 through 23. The throne of God was unveiled. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord Yahweh. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and his left The authority of the message is straight from God. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord Yahweh. The prophet had a vision of God sitting on his throne. The angels left to his right all around him. The words of God were quoted in verse 19. And the Lord Yahweh said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up, that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, another spoke in that manner. Notice God solicited a volunteer to convince Ahab that he might fall in battle and be killed. There were various responses. The response to the solicitation by God is given in 20. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord Yahweh and said, I will persuade him. The Lord Yahweh said to him, in what way? Now, the spirit has to be an evil spirit for God would not have a good angel lie. The question in what way is not because God didn't know it, but for the purpose of the dialogue so you and I can follow and know what's going on. The explanation of the demon spirit is given in 21. 21. So he said, I will go out and be a lion's spear in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord Yahweh said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. God is the one, notice, who is in control of all things. He sets boundaries of what is allowed, what is not allowed, even as Satan has access to heaven that we see in the book of Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Because God hates evil. And he puts the boundaries both times. This is the first time that we see and the only time we see a seducing spirit having access to God. Everything is under his control. God allows or disallows If you look at the book of Revelation during the Great Tribulation, you will realize that the Antichrist is is doing only what God allows and what he allows. It was given to him. It was given to him. There are boundaries. God doesn't force anyone to do the evil or the good. But he only knows the evil and the good they will do. And he sets the boundaries. Now notice the interpretation by Micah is given to us in 22. Therefore look, the Lord Yahweh has put a lion's spear in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. So Micaiah tells Ahab straight out, God has placed a lion's spears. These 400, they're, they're, they're speaking through demons. And God has just declared your death warrant. You're a dead man. Wow the message of the prophet of God was rejected. Did you expect anything different? Look at 23 through 27. The parallel passage there is 1 Kings 22, 24 through 28. In 23, the head false prophet was offended, so he tried to intimidate Micaiah. First by physical Abuse he hits him. Then Sedekiah, the son of Kanana, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. It's interesting, um, people who call themselves uh, leaders and examples and that they have the right to lead, they're always using physical force as a form of intimidation or pressure. Always. You look at anybody, you look at Hitler's. Uh, you look at Mussolini, you look at different things. Always. Interesting. Then verbally, abusing Micaiah, and he said, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord Yahweh go from me to speak to you, mocking him? Paul says, because people will reject the truth of God, he will send them strong delusions that they should believe the lie, the lie of the Antichrist in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.11. God is there to minister to people, to reach out to them, and he knows how far to go, and he knows where that line is, just as it was with Pharaoh. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, then you read, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Two different words. Pharaoh kept rejecting, resisting, and all that, and God says, I will respect you, honor you, I will confirm your hard heart. Ooh, there's a line there. The word of personal judgment spoken by Micaiah in verse 24, he says, And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. He directs himself, not directly to this head false prophet, Zedekiah. The false prophet um, um, would hide in fear of his life after the defeat. All the Nazis were brave, until after the war where they were tried. It was a whole different matter then. And they were proven to be false. You remember Jeremiah went through much of this. The false priest and prophet, Pashur struck Jeremiah and put him in the stocks. And the next day he brought Jeremiah forth and he prophesied the death of Pashur in the Babylonian captivity, in Jeremiah 20, verse 1 through 6. God's prophets always speak the truth. God's people will always speak the truth. And those who don't, they will compromise. They will give in to the pressure. They will give in to whatever it may be. Notice the rejection of Ahab to Micaiah here, verse 25 through 27. In 25, the command was to return him to prison. Then the king of Israel said, "Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, and the governor of the city and to Joash, the king's son, under the authority of of the governor and then the king's son. He's taken back to the capital city, placed back in prison there, and the command was to punish him, and." And thus and says, Thus saith the Lord, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I return in peace. Ahab was giving his last order and didn't know it. That was his last order. Micaiah was to be confined in prison again, restricted to bread and water as a form of his punishment because of his faithfulness to God. As soon as he said that, unhesitatingly, fearlessly, Micaiah declares. Then Micaiah said, if you ever return in peace, the Lord Yahweh has not spoken by me. And he said, take heed all you people. Wow. The confidence of Micaiah was not shaken. If Ahab came back in peace. It was real simply that God had not spoken through him. He would be a false prophet as much as the 400 that were under Ahab. The last warning to all present, they were to pay heed. God's goodness. To this very point, he's still warning all of them. At this point, each individual could back off. Otherwise, God wouldn't give the allowance. Take heed, all you people. Prophecy is one of the most unique, distinct characteristics of the Bible. No other book claims it, no other book has it. 25%, 20%, or one fifth of the scriptures contain prophecy. Future events declared before they happen, so when they happen, you know it's God. You have the time of the Gentiles from the head of gold, Babylon, to the ten-nation confederacy of the Antichrist, all of them. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, a break with the church age, the Antichrist, and the tribulation period. All given, the time of the Gentiles, to Daniel, as it was given to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel interpreted. There are people like Ahab who attempt to um, use the world and God for their own advantage, but the, they only deceive themselves. In other words, they, they, they'll, they'll weave in and out of, of the God's community and the world, and they'll use whatever's convenient. No big deal. They're like weather vanes. But God knows. God knows their hearts, their motives, and God will attempt to reveal himself to them in as far as he can, and they're open, but he knows their heart. God will draw the lines somewhere down the line, and then judgment comes. Um, sometimes judgment comes through natural means. Sometimes it comes directly by the hand of God. The book of Romans, chapter one, verse eighteen, says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who suppress the truth God in unrighteousness." So God is always judging and striking people, physically killing them in our lifetime, every generation. Those who go too far. Not everybody. Some but his wrath is being poured out daily on this world. We just don't know. No person can win against God or thwart his purposes, not by their wealth, not by their position, not by occultic mediums. Um, Daniel records for us um, Nebuchadnezzar when he came back to his sanity in chapter 4, 34 to 35, It says there, and at that end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I expect to see Cyrus in heaven. Men who God dealt with and they bowed their hearts to him and were used tremendously by him. The word of God will always be opposed and rejected by the world. Don't expect the world to accept the word. The word will go forth and if their hearts are open, God will give them illumination in the conviction of their sin, if they respond, they will be saved, just like you and I. If they don't respond, if they reject, they will remain lost. God doesn't force them to go to heaven. The educators mock the Word of God. The politicians often reject the Word of God, and the average person has no need of the Word of God. Things are going fine. The parable of the rich man, remember, he said that... Um, you know, he didn't know what to do. He had so many goods and crops, and that he would tear down his barns and build new ones, and then he would say, "You know, have my, to his soul, uh, take my ease and just enjoy it all." And um, God says, "Fool! This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided?" Luke twelve twenty. Wow. No one knows when they will die. No one can declare that date. We all walk on slippery poles. (laughs) The prophetical proclamation that ensured defeat in battle was the word of God. Third and last, you have the tactical operations thwarted in battle. The strategic plans for the battle are given in 28 through 30. The parallel passage is 1 Kings 22, 29 through 31. The march to battle is given to us in 28. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. All the checks, Jehoshaphat ignored them. I would be shaking in my boots. Compromising Jehoshaphat should have feared and refused to go out to battle having heard Micaiah. compromising Jehoshaphat was at greater fault knowing Micaiah was the prophet of God. To those that much is given, much more is required. Notice the treacherous plan of Ahab in 29. This guy's not even, he doesn't even try to hide what he's trying to do. And, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, hey, I will disguise myself and go into battle but you, you put on your robes, <laughs> And so the king of Israel disguised himself and he went up in the battle. What is your problem, Jehoshaphat? Wow. Ahab was only looking out for himself to blend in with the other men of war while Jehoshaphat would stand out like a sore thumb. Though Ahab did not believe Micaiah. He took precautions just in case Micaiah was right, thinking he could alter the prophecy. Wow, how foolish is that? The strict orders of the king of Syria are given to us. In verse 30, Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of the chariots who were with him, saying, Fight with no one, small or great, but only with the king of Israel. And the orders were clear. Find the king of Israel, Ahab, and you kill him. Exactly the result of what Micaiah said was going to happen. Notice the majestic hand of God in the battle is revealed to us in 31 through 34. Again, the parallel passage, 1 Kings 22, 35 32 through 35, and then verse 36 to 41 gives you added supplementary material about him buried in in Samaria, so on and so forth. Now notice the plan of Ahab in verse 31 was thwarted by God. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, it is the king of Israel. Therefore they surrounded him to attack, but Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord Yahweh helped them, and God delivered them from him, or diverted them from him. Mercy. Don't think that, oh, well, he did it. I could do it. That's tempting. No, this is just mercy. Absolute mercy. The Syrians rushed to kill who they thought to be Ahab, but it was King Jehoshaphat, so they surrounded him, and they were going to kill him. God, at times, overrides our stupidity. But we shouldn't tempt God or think that that is the rule or that it will happen every time. Jehoshaphat cried out to God and he diverted them away from him. It means he incited, he allured them, he instigated miraculously. This is not natural, this is supernatural. The soldiers refocused their attention to find Ahab in 2032. So it was when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. The plan of Ahab had failed. I would imagine at this about this time he's kind of just freaking out. Ahab was now the target of their search. Once again look at 33. The word of God is true reliable Regardless of man's attempt to stop it or to contradict it, it says, Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to his driver of the chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. No coincidence. No accident. We were told what was going to happen before it happened, so when it happened, we know that we can't say, oh, what a coincidence. No. Between the joints of his armor, you got to be a real good shooter or the hand of God directing it. The the arrow was guided by the hand of God, so he ordered his chariot driver to take him out of the battlefield, knowing the severity of his injury. The summary statement is given next. It says the battle increased that day and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening and about that time, the sunset he died. Micaiah proved to be a true prophet of God. Ahab is dead. Confirmed by verse 16 and 27. The prophecy of Elijah also had been fulfilled, which we don't get here. But Elijah gave a prophecy after Jezebel had stolen Naboth's uh, vineyard by falsely accusing them. And um, God sent Elijah to prophesy his death. It says in 1 Kings 21, 19, You shall speak to him, God speaking to Elijah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Both prophecies being fulfilled. The fulfillment is recorded in 1 Kings twenty-two thirty-eight. Listen to it. Then someone washed the chariot at the pool of Samaria, And the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord Yahweh which he had spoken. God's word is incredible. Accurate, reliable. When Jehoshaphat returned to Jerusalem, we don't get this. Chapter 18 really could go all the way up to verse 3. That would be a better break. Because when Jehoshaphat is returning... The prophet of God calls him out and accuses him of his sin in verse 3. It says, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord Yahweh? Therefore the wrath of the Lord Yahweh is upon you. Verse 2 of 19. People get mad when I name Certain people, why would they affiliate with them? You might say, why don't we always why don't we have guest speakers? Because I can't trust a lot of people. I don't give this pulpit over for people to come in and merchandise here to spread heresy. I've told you my circle's getting smaller. <laughs> but God has blessed us from within here. We have plenty of pastors and women teachers that. You ladies have been blessed with the number of women that God has raised up and the men also. We are blessed. Remember Balaam was sought by King Balak to curse Israel. And he couldn't do it and he told him right up front. He says, for there is no sorcery against Jacob nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel all what God has done. Numbers 23, 23. In other words, people cannot outsmart God. They just can't uh, win with God. There are many accounts in our nation's history in the war of independence against Britain, miraculous, that have no other explanation. Even today, many different things in Israel. During the uh, Golan War, um, in 73, there was a group of men going across the Golan, across this uh, minefield, and, and, and they're, you know, they're probing with their knives to find the minefield, but, you know, sooner or later you're going to blow one up. And all of a sudden, a wind came out of nowhere, and they were huddled together, and that wind just blew so hard, and all of a sudden it lifted. And when the, the soldiers, Israeli soldiers looked up, all the wind had taken the topsoil out and exposed every one of the mines in the Golan area, and they walked right through. Miracle after miracle. You cannot defeat God. It's impossible. Each of us as believers must not think we can be in close or ongoing fellowship with those of the world and believe we can please God or that it won't cost us. It will. We live in the world, but not of the world. We make our living in the world, but not in the manner of the world. There's a difference the minute you come to Christ. John 8, 12 says, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You think differently. You look at things differently. And you have to obey those checks when God checks you, when he checks me. 1 John 1, 6-7 says, If we say we have fellowship with him, Jesus, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not have practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so we stay in the light, we obey the checks. When we, we fail, we ask forgiveness, we stay in fellowship, we walk with God, we're fellowship with the people of God, and we are very, very careful that we don't deceive ourselves. The most important thing for every person to consider is where will you spend eternity at death? wherever you might be today. Some of you are out there in the radio world, somewhere in the world. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. When you die, where will you go? The Bible says that if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will die and you will immediately to hell, a place that you will await to be judged. At the white throne judgment, then hell and death will be cast into the lake of fire. If you're a believer, the minute you die, you're instantly present before the Lord. Those are the words of Jesus in Luke 16. The rich man and the beggar died, and they both were instantly in Hades. Place of comfort, place of torment. Now when Jesus descended after the resurrection, he descended, then raised from the dead, then he scooped up all those in faith, and now there's only one compartment. That's what we usually call hell, Hades, or shield of the Old Testament. But the minute you die, if you're a Christian, you're instantly present before the Lord, you're never found naked. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 8 says, and so it, it, it's important what your choice is. What, what side of the invitation do you stand on? The one that you've accepted or the one that you've rejected? Remember I told you about the flypaper, right? They used to make flypaper, you know, and one side was that sticky stuff, the other one wasn't. Now to you it might not make a difference, but to the fly it makes a big difference what side it chooses, Right? And so every person will make that decision and they will make that choice. God ha- does not make the choice where you spend eternity. God only honors the choice that you've made while you're living. The choice for eternity is made while you're living, not after death. And anybody who gives you hope after death is a liar and a deceiver. Get away from them. Every attempt to alter, contradict, and that to the word of God will not stand against God. Proverbs 19.21 says, there, is, there are many plans in man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14.12 Just think of how good God is that he didn't have to make a way, but he did make a way. He wasn't forced to die in our place and taste death for us. He chose to do that because he loves us. He's done everything that he could and that is needed for you and I to be saved or anybody who doesn't know him. And it's all a matter of choice, as the gospel is proclaimed. And people either respond in acceptance or rejection, one of the two. And so the tactical operations thwarted in battle was the work of God. Quite a chapter. The alliance of Jehoshaphat with evil Ahab. What a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. Characterized by these three things. The political affiliation to ensure victory in battle was not the will of God. So... Don't be rationalizing your compromise with darkness. Yeah, but God's in it. No, he's not in it. The prophetical proclamation that ensured defeat in battle was the word of God. It came to pass, just as it was declared. And the tactical operation thwarted in battle was the work of God. That soldier had nothing to do with it. He didn't even know it was him. It was God. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and goodness. Deal with our hearts. And we thank you for your word, your warnings. And Lord, we pray we would pay heed to you, Lord. I pray for every person here and, Lord, those out in the world hearing the gospel, that you would speak to their hearts if they don't know you. They would call on your name to be saved, to be forgiven of their sins. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved to repent of your sins. Maybe you're in the balcony, maybe the floor, maybe, as I said, somewhere on the internet or out there on the world on radio. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, then you can call upon him and ask him to forgive you of your sins, and he will save you right now. By grace through faith, it's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. And so this is a simple prayer of repentance if you want to accept him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.